This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. So, when you're inviting family or friends or coworkers over for dinner, the rules of etiquette say you should steer clear of three subjects sex, politics, and religion. The rule or the, the norm, you know, never talk about sex, politics, or religion at the dinner table, comes from a very good intention. This is Priya Parker. Some of the earliest charters of the Freemasons have rules about basically not talking about difference to what they call to, quote unquote, preserve harmony. When you are in mixed company, whatever that might mean. And it comes from an, a, a way to find common ground. Priya knows a lot about dealing with mixed company. When she was little, her parents divorced and they created two separate, very different households. And so every other Friday afternoon, I would leave my mother and stepfather's home, which is uh, this kind of Indian and British, Buddhist, atheist, vegetarian, you know, world banky, liberal, democratic household and travel, you know, about a little over a mile away to my father and stepmother's home and step into this white, evangelical, Christian, conservative, Republican, twice a week church going, climate skeptic family. Priya had to navigate all that as a kid. Something she's continued to do as an adult, professionally. Priya's a conflict resolution facilitator, and she's mediated conversations around race relations, Middle East politics, business deals, and the rule no sex, politics, or religion. Priya is not a fan. Part of the danger of this rule is that basically it squeezes out Heat, relevance, interest, identity, values, figuring out life together, grappling. And to think that everybody in the room is basically in opposition with one another is a very flat way to both look at people but also to look at conversation. And Priya says we're really not ever taught how to have a group conversation. Right? Like, you're not really ever taught that in school. You're not taught that in, frankly, even like business school or managerial programs. Like, how do you actually ask questions that open people up in a way that is interesting? And what I'm arguing is that you can talk about these various, basically, the core elements of living in ways that are meaningful, help people connect, and help us, frankly, like, sort our beliefs and our opinions and our decisions and our ways we live together. Priya thinks there's a way to deepen these get-togethers, to make them more meaningful, and, frankly, to make them better. Browse through the self-help aisle in any bookstore, and you will see a lot of ways to get richer or happier or thinner. And in reality, there are no shortcuts. We all know that. But there are also ways to reframe the things we already do, to think differently about them. About stress or self-confidence or decision-making, things that can actually make us better versions of ourselves. So today on the show, we're going to explore some of those ways to be a better you. 
And for Priya Parker, a simple way is to start with better conversations. Priya has a step-by-step guide, which she introduced on the TED stage. The first step of creating more meaningful everyday gatherings is to embrace a specific purpose. An expectant mother I know was dreading her baby shower. The idea of pin the diaper on the baby games and opening gifts felt odd and irrelevant. So she paused to ask, what is the purpose of a baby shower? What is my need at this moment? And she realized it was to address her fears of her and her husband's transition to parenthood. And so she asked two friends to invent a gathering based on that. And so on a sunny afternoon, six women gathered, and first to address her fear of of labor. She was terrified. They told her stories from her life to remind her of the characteristics she already carries. Bravery, wonder, faith, surrender. That they believe would carry her and help her in labor as well. And as they spoke, they tied a bead for each quality into a necklace that she could wear around her neck in the delivery room. Now, you might be thinking, this is a lot for a baby shower, or it's a little weird, or it's a little intimate. Good. It's specific. It's specific to them, just as your gathering should be specific to you. One of the biggest mistakes we make in our gatherings is we assume the purpose is obvious. Hmm. How do we fix that? Like, how do we make the gathering, you know, more specific? Well, the first question to ask before you even invite your guests is, what is the purpose of this? What is the need in my life right now? And then who can come together to help me kind of fulfill it? I'll give a simple example. Um, There was a a friend of mine who had a 50th birthday party, and at the beginning of the night, he rung his glass and just said something like, you know, I'm turning 50, and I've realized that most people, when they turn 50, I've watched this thing where they begin to contract, like in the the friends they make, the decisions they make, the cities they move to, the, the risks they take. And there are a few people who continue to expand. And what I want to do is continue to expand. And everybody here are people who, whether you're 50 or older or younger, are people who have always encouraged me to expand. And in that single moment, it's 30 seconds, he's transformed the context of the night. So I'm interested in how do you orient a group to have meaningful conversation that's connected to the purpose or the need of that gathering? The next step of creating more meaningful everyday gatherings is to cause good controversy. You may have learned, as I did, never to talk about sex, politics, or religion at the dinner table. Okay, so this brings us back to sex, politics, and religion, which are, you know, like no-goes for a lot of people. But but you're saying those topics can actually create good controversy. What What do you mean by good controversy? So good controversy is the idea that controversy can be generative. It can lead us into a conversation that helps us better understand something or helps make a decision. Often, when you avoid controversy or heat altogether, what you're doing is avoiding the questions that actually people care about at some level. Hmm. So, so what's an example? So one of the people I interviewed is uh, one of the general secretaries of the Society of Friends of, of Quakers, and she shared this example with me. Gay marriage was extremely controversial. And they finally decided to have a Quaker meeting, the sort of the, the business of the day, to face this specific topic head on. And she said that 
many of the young people in that community were speaking up and explaining why this was such an important issue and why this is something that the Quakers absolutely should lead on and that this was a deeply un-Quaker thing to not allow it. And then in older, older parts of the community, and particularly she said one man stood up and basically made the argument against it. And part of the power of that conversation was everybody was willing to actually say what they thought. And part of what happens in a community is if you don't allow people to process and to voice and to speak out, they can't be transformed by one another's ideas. You can't actually litigate. You can't debate. You can't be moved by the experiences, the stories in the room if you just keep what you think in your head. And they finally, at the end of that conversation, you know, voted and agreed to allow same-sex marriage in their, in their community. But they didn't bypass the conversation. So often, good controversy is anything that allows people to figure out what they actually believe together. And finally, to create more meaningful everyday gatherings, create a temporary alternative world through the use of pop-up rules. So a team dinner where different generations are gathering and don't share the same assumptions of phone etiquette. Whoever looks at their phone first foots the bill. Let's try it. <laughs> For a mom's dinner, where you want to upend the norms of what women who also happen to be mothers talk about when they gather. If you talk about your kids, you have to take a shot. <laughs> That's a real dinner. Rules are powerful because they allow us to temporarily change and harmonize our behavior. And in diverse societies, pop-up rules carry special force. They allow us to gather across difference, to connect, to make meaning together without having to be the same. I imagine that some people might find some of these rules you know, like a little grating. It's a, again, it depends on the context. And the reason I love this is because if it is grating to people, you can opt out. So I think we underserve people on our invitations because we aren't, every gathering is a social contract. So a lot of times these rules are basically ways to, to orient people to what the purpose is. So I want to I go back to family for a moment because family is the most complicated, right? So, so let's say uh, I, I think anyone listening will either have been in or will be in a situation like this where there's a, a holiday, everyone comes from different parts of the country, maybe there's baggage between the siblings or this, between the children and the parents. Maybe the parents are divorced and they're with their other partners and they don't really like each other. You're all in this room, there's different political views. <laughs> How do you make that work? How do you actually make that work? <laughs> How much time do you have? No. Um, I know I sound like a broken record, but you first you say, what is the purpose? Why are we all getting together? So often if like there's a divorced couple coming together with the new partners and they're like holding their breath and they're coming, they're usually doing it for their children, right? Or for their for a daughter or for, for, right. for something. And then depending on the nature of the group, the pitfalls or the minefields are so great. It's actually just kind of amazing to spend time together and be together. And in those contexts, you probably should play games. And maybe the maybe the heat is like everyone actually playing the same game, not every not like the different families each playing Monopoly in their own corners. Another example could be like at different points, like to do to do toasts, but to ask questions like, "What has this last year taught you?" You know, something that's like a little bit risky, but you invite people to take their own level of risk. Hmm. So how do you know when you walk away from 
a gathering that, you know, that it worked, that, that it was successful. You know, gathering is an act of meaning making. And so at some level, I think gatherings are powerful when people left, leave changed by them. People think like, oh, my gosh, a gathering where you change people, like that's a high bar. But we're changed by like stories. We're changed by one specific fact that someone might say at a dinner table that thinks I've never thought about that in that way before, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about that again you know, next time. Or if you go to a wedding and people change the ritual in a way that's really profound, you know, perhaps you just think, huh. You don't always have to do things the way you think you have to do things, right? Like, change doesn't have to be so deeply profound, but we learn and we grow and we rethink our ideas through other people. And I think that gatherings that allow for people to both think about themselves, each other, and their relationships to the world are meaningful, transformative gatherings. That's Priya Parker. She's a conflict resolution facilitator and the author of the book, The Art of Gathering. You can find her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about how to be better. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible. First, to Capital One. Capital One knows life doesn't alert you about your credit card. That's why they created Eno, the Capital One assistant that catches things that might look wrong with your credit card, like over-tipping, duplicate charges, or potential fraud, then sends an alert to your phone and helps you fix it. It's another way Capital One is watching out for your money when you're not. Capital One, what's in your wallet? See CapitalOne.com for details. I'm Shankar Vedantam. This week on Hidden Brain, we kick off our annual summer series, You 2.0. Ideas and advice about how you can respond to life's chaos. Let's do a just check to my inbox. Just check, just check, just check to my phone real quick. With wisdom. Listen to Hidden Brain from NPR every week. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, ideas about how to be better. Better at things like managing stress or connecting with people or being better decision makers. All right, Sabine, just uh, please tell me your name and, uh, and how we should identify you in the story. My name is Sabine Doble, and I am an assistant professor or incoming assistant professor at George Mason University. And what do you teach there? Or what will you teach there? I will be teaching developmental psychology. And one of the areas that Sabine researches is our executive function, our ability to consciously control our thoughts and actions. And it's what allows our conscious brain to override things we do automatically by habit. So, like, if I, like, when I wake up in the morning and I get out of bed and I put my slippers on, Mm-hmm. I'm not using my executive function. I'm just doing that. That's just something I don't even think well, it depends. about. Depends. How hard is it for you to get out of bed? Not hard. I just, it's a, every guy I get up, people... I just put my slippers on. It's like an automatic thing. 
Well, for some people, it's not as automatic because they want to sleep in. So it takes yeah. effort. Right. <laughs> right. So there will be differences. But yeah, there's a lot of things you can do in life without thinking too hard about it. You just kind of do it. Right. But I think executive function comes in to play when you need to uh, be more conscious and you have specific goals and there's like specific things that you need to execute. Right. Especially when there are underlying habits and that kind of go against what you're trying to do. Here's more from Sabine Doble on the TED stage. So we use executive function every day in all aspects of our lives. It's what we use when we need to break away from habit, inhibit our impulses, and plan ahead. Executive function is really complex and it's shaped by numerous factors. It's no surprise that researchers like me are so interested in understanding it and figuring out ways to improve it. But lately, executive function has become a huge self-improvement buzzword. People think you can improve it through brain training iPhone apps and computer games. Well, I'm here to tell you that this way of thinking about executive function is all wrong. Brain training won't improve executive function in a broad sense, because it involves exercising it in a narrow way, outside of the real-world context in which we actually use it. If you really want to improve your executive function in a way that matters for your life, you have to understand how it's influenced by context. And success in real-world situations depends on things like how motivated you are and what your peers are doing. Now, let me give you an example from my research. I recently brought in a bunch of kids to do the classic marshmallow test, which is a measure of delay of gratification that also likely requires a lot of executive function. So you may have heard about this test, but basically kids are given a choice. They can have one marshmallow right away, or if they can wait for me to go to the other room and get more marshmallows, they can have two instead. Now, most kids really want that second marshmallow, but the key question is, how long can they wait? <laughs> now, I added a twist to look at the effects of context. I told each kid that they were in a group, like the green group, and I even gave them a green t-shirt to wear. And I said, your group waited for two marshmallows, and this other group, the orange group, did not. And then I left the kid alone in the room, and I watched on a webcam to see how long they waited. So what I found was that kids who believed that their group waited for two marshmallows were themselves more likely to wait. So they were influenced by a peer group that they'd never even met. So what this all shows is just how much context matters. It's not that these kids had good executive function or bad, it's that the context helped them use it better. I mean, that would suggest that you can actually improve a child's executive function if you can somehow convince them to wait. It would suggest that it's possible to change the way that people make decisions. I totally agree. I mean, there's all kinds of examples where this seems to happen. Um, you can really exploit things like social influences um, to help you do things that you want to do, like to help you use that executive function to get out the door and go exercise, for example, um, and to maintain an exercise routine, like group exercise. I think a lot of people have already picked up on this, like group exercise works because you get used to being in an environment with other people that who have friendly faces that you know and they expect you to be there. 
um, and it becomes more meaningful for you. So in a way, like, I think you have to trick yourself or you have to tell yourself, like, right now you might say, like, there might be some area of life where you want to improve, but you feel like you just can't figure out how to change your decisions or be better, make better decisions. If you can make that more meaningful for you, then it'll be easier for you to kind of use that effort to, to achieve those goals. So what does this mean for you and for your kids? Well, let's say that you want to learn Spanish. You could try changing your context and surrounding yourself with other people who also want to learn. And even better if these are people that you really like. That way you'll be more motivated to use executive function. Or let's say that you want to help your child do better on her math homework. You could teach her strategies to use executive function in that particular context, like putting her phone away before she starts studying, or planning to reward herself after studying for an hour. Now, I don't want to make it sound like context is everything. Executive function is really complex, and it's shaped by numerous factors. But what I want you to remember is if you want to improve your executive function in some aspect of your life, think about the context and how you can make your goals matter more to you and how you can use strategies to help yourself in that particular situation. Don't look for quick fixes. The key part of this is knowing how context shapes your behavior and how you can use that knowledge to change for the better. So what's the slow fix? I think the slow fix is first figuring out what it is that, what area of life it is or what particular situation it is that you want to improve your executive function or how you use it and understand more about that situation. Like, how much does it really matter to you? What can you do to make it matter more to you? And go from there. Like, you, for example, I used to smoke and, uh, like, I, was, I cut down a lot, but it was very hard to let go of that last cigarette. And, like, there was one cigarette I'd have before I went to bed. And that was really hard. And I just could not do it. Um, but I moved to a new apartment, and there was no smoking allowed. And I lived in Canada. It was very cold in the winter. And I was just not one of those people who was going to go outside to have a cigarette. And that was it. That was it. I never smoked again. It's almost like the environment will support you in using your executive function. You'll still need to use it. You still need to use conscious control. But so much of how we function in the world depends on what matters to us and like what, how well we know ourselves and how much we can exploit that knowledge um, in our favor. That's Sabine Doble. She's a developmental cognitive scientist and an assistant professor at George Mason University. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas on how to be better and even more confident. Confidence has been an essential element of the fuel for everything else. This is Brittany Packnett. She's devoted her life to social justice. Confidence made me brave enough to be a teacher. Confidence helped me be brave enough to step out on the streets of Ferguson. Confidence helped me be brave enough to sit next to President Obama um, and talk about issues of policing. And I think that I'm obsessed with confidence in part because I know what it is to live a life without confidence. That I absolutely grew up as a young woman of color in a country where people like me are socialized not to be confident. That mm. either we are not deserving of confidence or that our confidence is intimidating or threatening. 
You might know Brittany's voice from the podcast Pod Save the People, where she tackles some of the biggest issues around race and social justice each week. Hey, y'all, it's Brittany Packnett. I'm at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. But before all that, Brittany was a teacher in St. Louis, and she noticed that her students never felt like they had permission to feel and to be confident, as she described on the TED stage. When I was a teacher... All of my students were black or brown. All of them were growing up in a low-income circumstance. Some of them were immigrants. Some of them were disabled. But all of them were the very last people this world invites to be confident. That's why it was so important that my classroom be a place where my students could build the muscle of confidence, where they could learn to face each day with the confidence you need to redesign the world in the image of your own dreams. Not everyone lacks confidence. We make it easier in this society for some people to gain confidence because they fit our preferred archetype of leadership. We reward confidence in some people and we punish confidence in others. And all the while, far too many people are walking around every single day without it. For some of us, confidence is a revolutionary choice. And it would be our greatest shame to see our best ideas go unrealized and our brightest dreams go unreached, all because we lacked the engine of confidence. That's not a risk I'm willing to take. Hmm. So what do you do when you get a kid who's, you know, who's sort of looking around and saying, you know, this country or, or this society or this community mm-hmm. wasn't made to, to give me opportunities. Like, yeah. what do you do when a kid like that says, you know, what do I have to be confident about? Like, how do you make the case? It's so interesting because young people don't start out that way. The world teaches them to lack confidence. Mm. That's not yeah. how they begin. Um, you know, sociologists would talk about a cycle of socialization where you're born into a family and if you're fortunate, right, that family is encouraging you. They're showering you with love. Um, they're giving you all of the reasons to believe in yourself. But hmm. as you start to interact with the world more and more for reasons of identity, for reasons of economics, for reasons of geography, for reasons of gender and gender identity, The world will start to teach you that either who you are will be punished or it will be celebrated. And that socialization moves young people, especially young people on the margins, to a place where they start to lose that confidence. We see girls tapping out on confidence in middle school. Uh, These are the times when they're being told, well, actually, you shouldn't be in this advanced math class or maybe you should move out of this science section. Right. So the world is actually teaching young people not to be confident in who they are. It has nothing to do with who young people intrinsically are. And so in answer to your question, it's about helping young people recognize the assets that they already have in them. Yeah. So how do you do that? How do you teach confidence to someone? Yeah. You know, really confidence is built in community. We learn to be our most confident selves or our least confident selves by the folks that we model ourselves after and by the people that give us permission to be curious about ourselves and the world around us. Um, And those really are, are, are things that are essential to building confidence in all people, but certainly young people, because, you know, the earlier we can get to young people to help them build their most confident selves, the better. 
My family used to do everything together, including the mundane things like buying a new car. And every time we did this, I'd watch my parents put on the exact same performance. We'd enter the dealership and my dad would sit while my mom shopped. When my mom found a car that she liked, they'd go in and meet with the dealer. And inevitably, every time the dealer would turn his attention and his body to my dad, assuming that he controlled the purse strings and therefore this negotiation. Reverend Packnett, they'd say, how do we get you into this car today? My dad would inevitably respond the same way. He'd slowly and silently gesture toward my mother and then put his hands right back in his lap. It might have been the complete shock of negotiating finances with a black woman in the 80s, but whatever it was, I'd watch my mother work these car dealers over until they were basically giving the car away for free. <laughs> she would never crack a smile. She would never be afraid to walk away. I know my mom just thought she was getting a good deal on a minivan, but what she was actually doing was giving me permission to defy expectations, and to show up confidently in my skill no matter who doubts me. You know, there's, it's, it's interesting to me because there's, there's this idea that came into vogue like in the last 10 years, which was fake it till you become it. <laughs> and a part of me, I have to admit, like a part of me really loves that. Like, yeah. I'm going to fake being confident until I start believing that I am. But then there's a part of that which is, you know, which is fraudulent, you know, it's, it's, it's like the Silicon Valley model, like the woman who wanted to, you know, take a pinprick of blood from your finger and transform the world. It was a total fraud, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, is there an argument that you can fake confidence or that you should fake confidence at least to give you a, you know, like a jumpstart? You know, I don't think it's about faking confidence as much as it's about understanding your worth. I'll never forget uh, the first meeting of President Obama's 21st Century Policing Task Force. I was one of the youngest people on the task force. And I walk into the room and there's Connie Rice, who has spent her entire career dealing with police violence issues, dating back and beyond Rodney King uh, in mm -hmm. Los Angeles. There's, um, you know, professors and lifelong activists and people who are running their own nonprofits. There's Brian Stevenson, who is mm -hmm. a personal hero of mine. And I'm trying to focus on the paper in front of me and not <laughs> fangirl about the fact that he's sitting across from me. Um, and in that moment, I had this terrible feeling of imposter syndrome. I actually just didn't belong. You um, thought, what am I doing why, here? Why, I'm, how in the world <laughs> am I qualified to be at this table of people handpicked by the president of the United States mm. to have this conversation for and across the entire country, right? Um, and I had to remind myself that I have expertise too, that I have a responsibility in a community that I'm representing here too. That wasn't about faking confidence. That was about understanding my fundamental worth as a human being and as an activist and someone with real expertise because I was on the front lines of this thing, right? And I am worth sitting here, I'm worth learning, I'm worth growing, and I'm worth contributing my voice. I didn't have to fake that when I got real with myself. Yeah. But but that's the thing, right? Like, you, you almost have to be your own coach. Absolutely. You almost have to kind of, you kind of have to quiet the voices of doubt because yeah. we're, we're all susceptible to that, right? We're all susceptible to, like, doubt 
negative yeah. thoughts like yeah. you suck what are you doing here and this is this is part of the reason why i am hopeful that we reach a day sooner rather than later where mental health care is free and accessible to everyone because mm-hmm. my ability to engage in positive self-talk has everything to do with the therapy that i've been through over the last few years and the first thing i had to change was how i talked about and to myself mm-hmm. that was the most fundamental shift in my ability to be a confident person and And literally to this day, when I hear myself thinking, you can't do that, no one is going to care, having to counteract that with a different conversation with myself and saying, what is this fear coming from? What has led you to believe this? What are the things that you did just last week that you thought you couldn't do the week before? Mm. Um, And who are the people that you can contact or the passages that you can read that can bring you back to yourself? These are the kind of exercises that we have to be intentional about in order to do the constant work of confidence because it is a lifelong battle and self-doubt will inevitably come but we have the power to change that if we change it that's Brittany packnett she's an activist and the co-host of the podcast pod save the people Brittany's upcoming book is called we are like those who dream you can see her full talk at ted.com On the show today, ideas about how to be better. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. To restore your faith in humanity, get the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Uninterrupted conversations between real people about the things that matter most. This season, we're hearing from LGBTQ voices and what life was like before Stonewall. From lesser-known victories to conversations across generations. Listen to all 12 episodes now. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today... Ideas about how to be better, more confident, more calm, more intentional, even more healthy. What you're doing right now at this very moment is killing you. This is writer Neela from Merchant on the TED stage. And the thing she says that's killing you? Sitting down. Here's more from Neela from Merchant on the TED stage. Nowadays, people are sitting 9.3 hours a day which is more than we're sleeping at 7.7 hours. Sitting is so incredibly prevalent, we don't even question how much we're doing it. And because everyone else is doing it, it doesn't even occur to us that it's not okay. In that way, sitting has become the smoking of our generation. And of course, there's health consequences to this, scary ones besides the waste. Uh, Things like Breast cancer and colon cancer are directly tied to our lack of physical inactivity. 10%, in fact, on both of those. 6% for heart disease, 7% for type 2 diabetes, which is what my father died of. Now, any of those stats should convince each of us to get off our duff more, but if you're anything like me, it won't. What did get me moving was a social interaction. Someone invited me to a meeting, but couldn't manage to fit me into a regular sort of conference room meeting and said, I have to walk my dogs tomorrow. Could you come then? Seemed 
kind of odd to do. And actually, that first meeting, I remember thinking, I have to be the one to ask the next question because I knew I was going to huff and puff during this conversation. And yet, I've taken that idea and made it my own. So instead of going to coffee meetings or fluorescent lit conference room meetings, I ask people to go on a walking meeting to the tune of 20 to 30 miles a week. It's changed my life. But before that, what actually happened was I used to think about it as you could take care of your health or you could take care of obligations. And one always came at the cost of the other. So now, several hundred of these walking meetings later, I've learned a few things. First, there's this amazing thing about actually getting out of the box that leads to out of the box thinking. Whether it's nature or the exercise itself, it certainly works. And second, and probably the more reflective one, is just about how much each of us can hold problems in opposition when they're really not that way. And if we're going to solve problems and look at the world really differently, whether it's in governance or business or environmental issues, job creation, maybe we can think about how to reframe those problems as having both things be true. Because it was when that happened with this walk and talk idea that things became doable and sustainable and viable. So I started this talk talking about the tush, so I'll end with the bottom line, which is、um, walk and talk. Walk the talk. You'll be surprised at how fresh air drives fresh thinking, and in the way that you do, you'll bring into your life an entirely new set of ideas. Thank you. That's writer Neela from Merchant. You can find her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about how to be better, better about things like stress. Do you know what really stresses me out? Tell me. Is reading studies about how stress takes decades <laughs> off your life. Like that stresses me out more. Yeah. You know, I used to love reading studies like that, and every time a study like that came out, I'd be like, "Yes, more fodder for my message that stress kills." This is Kelly McGonigal. She's a research psychologist at Stanford University. And I will tell you, you know, I came across a newly published study, and、um, from the title of the study, I thought it was going to be another one of those studies that says, "Yes, stress kills you." Another thing I can tell people to motivate them to reduce or avoid stress. And as I read that study, my mind was blown. Her mind was blown because that study said that stress isn't necessarily a bad thing, but believing that stress is bad—that is the actual problem. And that's a very different kind of messaging than the the scare tactics that our field sometimes takes.、Mm. So that was a stressful moment. And of course, it was stressful because Kelly knew there was a connection between stress and health. But that study made her reevaluate her entire perspective, because maybe stress wasn't a bug, but a feature, something we can actually harness just by changing the way we think about it. I mean, you as a researcher, somebody who has researched stress, it's not like you don't experience it. You experience it all the time. All the time, like in this interview, like right now, are you experiencing it? Yes.、Hmm. Can you describe like how you're feeling right now, like your symptoms? Well, I wouldn't describe them as symptoms. I would describe <laughs> them as、um, changes that are taking place in my brain and body to help me rise to a moment that matters.、Hmm. So I am feeling alert. I'm feeling a little bit raw and vulnerable, as if I'm more open to the world around me, 
and I can sense my heart beating. It's not racing, but I definitely feel, I sense this type of stress as a surge of energy that is encouraging me to engage. Hmm. For most people, those are unfun feelings. Like most of us don't like that feeling. Well, it depends on the context. People like it when they're falling in love. They like it if they're on a roller coaster. But the, the feelings themselves actually can be quite positive, um, depending on the context and how you think about them. Kelly McGonigal picks up her idea from the TED stage. Can changing how you think about stress make you healthier? And here the science says yes. When you change your mind about stress, you can change your body's response to stress. Your heart might be pounding, you might be breathing faster, maybe breaking out into a sweat. And normally we interpret these physical changes as anxiety or signs that we aren't coping very well with the pressure. But what if you viewed them instead as signs that your body was energized, was preparing you to meet this challenge? That pounding heart is preparing you for action. If you're breathing faster, it's no problem. It's getting more oxygen to your brain. Now, that is exactly what participants were told in a study conducted at Harvard University. They were taught to rethink their stress response as helpful. And participants who learned to view the stress response as helpful for their performance, well, they were less stressed out, less anxious, more confident. But the most fascinating finding to me was how their physical stress response changed. Now, in a typical stress response, your heart rate goes up and your blood vessels constrict. And this is one of the reasons that chronic stress is sometimes associated with cardiovascular disease. It's not really healthy to be in this state all the time. But in the study, when participants viewed their stress response as helpful, their heart was still pounding, but it actually looks a lot like what happens in moments of joy. And this is really what the new science of stress reveals, that how you think about stress matters. So my goal as a health psychologist has changed. I no longer want to get rid of your stress. I want to make you better at stress. We actually know from the research that having more anxiety, you're probably going to perform better than people who have no anxiety. We know that that adrenaline you're feeling that's causing your heart to pound, that's maybe makes you feel like you're a little bit constricted, maybe you're sweating, maybe you're breathing faster, that that is literally energy being made available to you. You basically see a response that is your body going into um, peak performance mode, almost hmm. a flow state. Hmm. And, and often the only thing that's required to, to make that shift is just to stop fighting it to recognize that this is a human experience, to get this flood of energy, and it doesn't always feel great. But if you didn't have it, you would not do your best. And one of the simplest um, beliefs or thoughts that allows people to have this kind of positive challenge response is simply, I can handle this. I can handle this. I might not be able to control it, but I can handle this. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it does sound like it is possible to, to kind of tame stress, I guess. I think it's possible to transform stress when our default response to stress is harmful. And I think, you know, that's how I think about also the stressful circumstances as well. You can't always control what happens in life and what's going on in the world, just like you can't always control your heart rate. You can't always control the hormones that are flooding your body or the neurotransmitters that are coursing through your brain. But you can surrender to the reality of that 
and then ask yourself in this moment, what's something I can do that shifts what's happening in a more positive direction? We're going to take this as the starting point. I'm stressed. My heart is pounding. I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling confused. I'm feeling overwhelmed. What's something I can do in this moment that is going to accept that, figure out what it is that matters most, and then use some of this energy, use some of this biochemistry to make choices or take actions that are consistent with what matters most? Hmm. You know, whenever I have to, like, present in front of a big group of people, you know, I get, you know, a little bit nervous. And and I'm just – I don't want to talk to people beforehand. I just want to kind of be by myself. And I'm just – Oh, yes. You know, right? Like, I just just don't want to – you know what I mean? I I do know what you mean. You know, what's really interesting to me is you said that you didn't want to talk to the people around you. And, you know, there's a response that your brain and body can have in moments of stress that encourages you to connect with others and gives you all the neurochemistry you need to do that and to feel good about it. Um, That really nudges you in that direction of connection. And then we also have these stress responses that can feel more like we're shutting down or more like we have to defend ourselves, more like we need to escape this reality and get out of here. And they're both totally natural instincts. But anything that you can do in a moment where... If you're going to choose your own stress response, this is a moment to find that part of you that knows how to do that under stress and to not make it all about yourself, um, but to look around you and see who else is in this moment with you. I want to tell you about one of the most underappreciated aspects of the stress response. And the idea is this. Stress makes you social. To understand the side of stress, we need to talk about a hormone, oxytocin. And I know, oxytocin has already gotten as much hype as a hormone can get. It even has its own cute nickname, the cuddle hormone, because it's released when you hug someone. It primes you to do things that strengthen close relationships. But here's what most people don't understand about oxytocin. It's a stress hormone. Your pituitary gland pumps this stuff out as part of the stress response. It's as much a part of your stress response as the adrenaline that makes your heart pound. And when oxytocin is released in the stress response, it is motivating you to seek support. Your stress response wants to make sure you notice when someone else in your life is struggling so that you can support each other. Okay, so how is knowing this side of stress going to make you healthier? Well, oxytocin doesn't only act on your brain, it also acts on your body. Oxytocin helps heart cells regenerate and heal from any stress-induced damage. This stress hormone strengthens your heart. And the cool thing is, is that all of these physical benefits of oxytocin are enhanced by social contact and social support. Your stress response has a built-in mechanism for stress resilience. And that mechanism is human connection. Okay, so this is not easy, right? Like, this is not like flipping a light switch because sometimes it's, it's hard to sort of push yourself to reach out to other people, especially when you're feeling stressed, right? And your default reaction is to kind of close up, right? Yes. What I've learned from the research on stress is that we all have these sort of stress habits. And sort of left unchecked, we might respond to every stressful moment with our most comfortable and habitual stress response. 
And there are these other stress responses we may need to more actively cultivate. So, for example, I'm the kind of person who likes to learn from stressful experiences, but I can get very paralyzed by fear and anxiety. And I've had to practice courage as a response to stress. Mm. You know, I'm the kind of person who, for a long time, if something was making me scared, I would look for the way to avoid it. I often talk about my fear of flying as an example of that, where I refused to fly for years because I just didn't want to feel it. I didn't want to feel the fear. And I had to cultivate courage as a response to stress, which for me meant choosing to view doing something as being in service of something higher than myself. And um, our ability to sort of see the meaning in the things that are causing us stress by taking a bigger than self perspective is another thing that is, I think, profoundly human. And it's one of the ways that I um, choose to deal with stress is to say, I'm, I'll take it. Let me experience this fear right now because I have a sense that this is playing a part of a bigger story. And that is a story that is a human story of all of us having to deal with our fears and my willingness to do so in ways that I may not even always know might be helping others do so as well. Hmm. So, I mean, it seems like in some ways stress is like a call to action. Yeah. But having read through all this research, like, um, do you feel like we all have similar levels of stress and we just deal with it differently? Or are there people who are just not really affected? This is a yes and kind of situation. There are a lot of things that seem to be rooted in our genetic temperament that uh, influence how we respond to stress, Mm. in addition to life experiences. But if you're talking that sort of basic personality trait, um, and that trait isn't so much whether you are negatively affected by stress, it's whether you are sensitive to learning from experiences and being changed by experiences. And some people seem to be genetically primed to be strongly influenced by important experiences, most of which people define as stressful. So it's not so much that some people are good at stress and some people are bad at stress. Some people seem to be more sensitive to this this, um, biological mechanism we have to learn from experience. I'm okay dealing with some of those side effects like being anxious a lot of the time or maybe not being able to sleep at night because I'm trying to replay the most stressful experience and figure out what I can learn from it. I'm okay with that because I also believe it's part of what what makes human beings able to learn and grow and also have empathy for others. There's something so interesting about how fundamental stress is to who we are as humans, um, to how we learn and grow, and also to how we connect with others. So I'll take it. That's Kelly McGonigal. She's a health psychologist and the author of the book, The Upside of Stress. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on how to be better this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, and J.C. Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin and Brent Bachman. Our intern is Emmanuel Johnson. 
Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, and Anna Phelan. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. You can also write to us directly at tedradiohour at npr.org, and you can tweet us. It's at tedradiohour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.